Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's time to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty with Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. And uh, that is where you are, Dirt Radio. Hi, good morning to you. Easter Monday, whatever that means. Uh, Probably a bit of a sleep in, working out which hour you're in because they, what do they do? They set the clocks back, well, a couple of days ago already. Anyway, it's uh, John here with you, and uh, we are Dirt Radio. Of course, this is 3CR. 8.55 a.m. And Dirt Radio is sponsored by Friends of the Earth, and you can check them out at foe.org.au. New South Wales went to the polls a couple of weeks ago, and the Greens won an unprecedented four seats in the lower house. Two of them were in regional areas, and the Nationals were dumped big time right across the regions. And I have to say, and a lot of other people have been saying, the anti-coal seam gas and anti-fracking campaigns played no small part. And the anti-CSG campaign was buoyed by the release of a documentary called Frackman, which was toured around New South Wales before the election. The film follows an unlikely hero of the movement. He was a former construction worker and kangaroo shooter named Dane Pratsky and Frackman was shown in 20 regional centres across New South Wales before the election. As I said, uh, it's already played to packed cinemas and smaller towns all around the place. And it's been using crowdsourcing as a way of setting up private screenings in pubs and clubs and in cinemas as well. This month, Frackman is coming to Melbourne and it's being toured in Melbourne itself and around Victoria. Frackman's heritage as a film, I think, has its roots in another documentary. That film was Gasland, which was made in the United States as, uh, I suppose, an illustration of the kinds of things that fracking does to the environment and not just the environment, to communities and to social life where it's carried out. The accidental hero in Gasland was a farmer, is a farmer, named John Fenton. And he comes from a place called Pavilion in the state of Wyoming. He was on a speaking tour of Australia in March last year. And the reason he was here is to tell Australians to engage in the debate around the extraction of coal seam gas and not to be blindsided by the energy companies and their promise of all kinds of goodies and riches. Unintentionally, he became one of America's American farming community's most prominent anti-fracking advocates. And I was fortunate enough last year to be able to interview him, and I thought it might be interesting to hear him again, given that Frack Man is just about to come our way, So here's John Fenton talking to me about what happened when the gas companies 
and the coal companies decided to enter his farm world. John Fenton is a farmer from a place called Pavilion in the state of Wyoming. He wants Australia to engage in the debate around the extraction of coal seam gas and not to be blindsided by energy companies who want to do just that very thing. One of America's American farming's community's most prominent anti-fracking advocates, John Fenton, features in the film Gasland, which probably most of our listeners in Dirt Radio know about already. And that film highlighted environmental and social fallout related to fracking. On the invitation of Lock the Gate, John Fenton spoke to packed town halls all across the regional areas in New South Wales last week. And he's here in Victoria, sponsored by Friends of the Earth and Lock the Gate Victoria, to relay his cautionary tale about what what happens in communities and to warn the farming communities in this state not to let it happen to them. Thanks very much for coming on board with Dirt Radio, John. My pleasure to be here. And I wanted to ask you just, this is something very simple, very straightforward, mainly because my wife asked me when I said I was going to be interviewing you, where is Wyoming? Wyoming is uh, right in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, pretty much kind of west central United States. Where we actually live is just east of the Continental Divide in the state of Wyoming. And what kind of farming do you do? We farm alfalfa hay that is primarily fed to beef cattle. And for the visitor who's never been there before, can you give us a little bit of an idea what the landscape might look like? It's pretty wide open, high desert country. Uh, The Rocky Mountains lay about 25 miles east or west of our home. Uh, They go up to 14,000 feet in elevation. Uh, Very spectacular. We live in a big, broad valley, sagebrush, um, buffalo grass, it snows and gets cold in the winter, and it gets very hot in the summertime. But it's a very beautiful, remote place. So you'd be having ma- mountains in the background, is that right? That's is correct, the, Okay, yes. okay. Now, let, let's get down to the, the, the nitty-gritty and tell us a little bit about the history in relation to what happened with your farm and your home in relation to the gas company. Well, the area that we live in, they're just east of the small town of Pavilion, and Pavilion, Wyoming, has about 200 people in it, and we live east of town about eight miles. The first gas well was actually drilled in 1964 in the area, but it's into a tight sands formation, and and the, the geology was such that it didn't produce a lot of gas at that time. So between 1964 and the probably mid-90s, we had about 25 gas wells in the area. Then in northeast Texas, around the Dallas-Fort Worth area, they came up with this modern form of hydrofracking called uh, high-volume slick water hydraulic fracturing and allowed them to open up these tight formations and produce the gas out of them because the gas is actually trapped in the rock itself. So from late 90s to the first couple years of the 2000s, we went from 25 wells to 200 wells. So the first thing we really noticed was just the absolute change that the landscape undertook. I mean, uh, we became industrialized. It was no longer a remote farming community. We had roads everywhere and drilling rigs and people there 24 hours a day and a destruction of the cultural sites, uh, TP rings and things such as that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't too long after we started to see this big expansion in wells that neighbors started to notice their water quality changing, uh, color, odor, uh, 
water that had been clear and really nice for years was all of a sudden smelling like kerosene and turning brown or black. And people were, were very alarmed by that. And what what, uh, what year was this? When did this start to happen? The what? first real degradation to the water that was noticed was probably around 2002. One of the things I was interested in to find out is how did the gas companies convince your community to let them onto the properties? What, what, what was that? What was involved there? Well, the majority of the property where we live is what we call split estate property. The landowners do not own the mineral rights. So the company comes in and leases the mineral rights from whoever owns them. In this case, about 85% of the mineral rights are owned by the Native American tribes. And law states then that the mineral rights take precedence over the surface rights, and they can come in and, and explore for their minerals whether we want them to or not. So essentially the idea of locking the gate was not on at that point. No, and quite frankly, uh, the people there, you know, the first wells in Wyoming, the first oil well, I think, was drilled in 1896. We've lived with this for a long time, and this was, you know, portrayed to us as the same old business, but with some modern twists to make it more efficient to getting the gas out. But I, I can assure you that coal seam gas, we call it coal bed methane in the States, uh, tight sands gas like we have or shale gas is not the oil and gas we're used to. It is very unconventional. The practices are, are new and the amount of activity involved to extract these is is so huge compared to the old style of oil and gas exploration. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. So they didn't really explain the, the infrastructure that was involved in the comings and goings of 24, I, the 24 hours a day things quite extraordinary as well. No, they didn't explain that. They they came in and said we're, you know, we're going to be good neighbors to you. We want to be a part of the community. Uh, we're here to provide jobs. We're here to, you know, really be a neighbor. And you know, people were trusting in that area. We wanted to believe that that's what was going to happen. And uh, we thought that the, you know, the federal government or the state government would look out for us and and we, we found out really soon that what they were looking out for was was how many wells could be drilled. They were there to facilitate industry coming through and drilling. And uh, they had very little intention of, of standing up for the people, and it's still that way. And they they had to build roads, essentially roads through your property or yes. expand roads that were already there? Uh, they built roads that through wild parts of our property that had never had a vehicle over them before. Like I said, right above our home, we actually had teepee rings that had been there for hundreds of years. This is where the Native Americans use a cone-shaped hide tent, and they would stack rack rocks around the bottom. We yes. called them teepee rings. Yep. They'd been there for hundreds of years. Right. One so this is very close to your, actually close to your home. All the wells are as close as 300 feet to our house. We're right in our front yard. Really? Yes. Almost every direction from our house, you can see a well. And, and is this the case with your, your neighbors as well? It or? is. You know, we have cases in the United States, you, you can fly into the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is a major metropolitan area. These wells are on street corners and across from schools and churches and hospitals in Dallas-Fort Worth. You can see my eyes kind of bugging out right now, can't you? Yes. This is not, this is not the normal out-in-the-middle-of-nowhere oil and gas production. And we're not tapping a conventional reservoir here where there's a big puddle of this stuff underground. They have to drill wells every three or four or 500 feet and have to fracture this rock underneath to get this to come up. So the footprint of this is absolutely massive. And you were saying before, the when you started to notice these 
changes. I mean, actual changes in your water and so on. What what year was that in? That was the early two thousands. Early two thousands. Yeah, two thousand two, two thousand three, somewhere around there. Okay, and so when, once you started to notice those things, what did you, what was the next step that you took? Well, you know, first of all, it was kind of neighbors talking to neighbors. Uh, a friend of mine, Lewis Meeks, who his place was where all the farm workers went in the morning to fill their canteens up. We used to have a big migrant workforce that came through. We grew sugar beets, and they required hand weeding. Thousands of acres that were weeded by hand. And so every morning, Lewis allowed people to come on his place and fill up water. He came and said, my water, is there's something wrong with it? And that, they were drilling a well right behind his house. And sure enough, we go over there, it smells like kerosene. And to this day, it still smells like kerosene. And then my neighbors, Jeff and Rhonda Locker, their water turned black and actually plugged the washing machine up and overflowed onto the floor. And it began a journey for them that has cost her her health. It's been a horrendous thing. And so we we went to the state and industry and said, hey, there's real problems happening out here. This water's been fine for years, and all of a sudden now this activity has moved in, and our water's going bad. Industry, oh, there's nothing we could have done that would have affected your water. And then the state of Wyoming defended industry stand. We spent up until oh, 2007, 2008 trying to get them to pay attention. And you were going, this was basically going to the the capital, mm-hmm. uh, senior politicians and so on. Yeah, even our local people, the Department of Environmental Quality for the state of Wyoming, all the people who are supposed to regulate this and the people who you're supposed to go to. And the state of Wyoming would tell us, well, we don't have the money or the manpower to perform this kind of, of investigation. And, and quite frankly, we don't think there's anything wrong. You know, industry tells us there's nothing wrong and we're taking them for their, what they say. Mm-hmm. So we finally got frustrated, and we went to Denver, Colorado, and we visited with our regional office of the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, and we asked them, come and do a groundwater investigation. So they did. In around 2000, late 2007, early 2008, they came in and started a groundwater investigation. After sampling the domestic wells where we get our water, they came back with a recommendation. They said, don't drink your water. Don't cook with your water. And if you bathe in it or use it for laundering or for washing dishes, open your doors and windows and ventilate your home so it doesn't explode. <sighs> okay. <laughs> you know, this was, this was shocking. We knew we had problems, but to actually have that recommendation in front of you takes your breath away. And what, 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 what was the response of the community? What, what were you doing? Well, you know, those of us that had these problems, we were finally – felt like a little bit of a weight had been lifted off. As here's people who say, yes, you do have a problem, mm. and here's what you can start to do, and, and we're going to keep investigating. Mm-hmm. And they did keep investigating. They, they sampled more of the domestic water. They sampled the surface water in the little streams that come through. They even sampled the water that comes up out of the gas wells, and they drilled monitoring wells. So in, in the winter of 2010, they released a draft report that said there's definitely contamination in the groundwater in the area east of Pavilion, Wyoming, and it is linked to the practices of drilling for gas and hydraulic fracturing. We found benzene at 50 times the maximum contaminant level. We found glycols and alcohols and solvents that are used in hydraulic fracturing. Mm. So we thought, wow, you know, here we're not imagining things. We're Mm -hmm. not, uh, you know, hallucinating. There really are problems. But boy, what it did was it, it caused the oil and gas industry and the state of Wyoming to go to war with the EPA. They really did. 
And what, how did they do that? How, what was their tactics? That was actually one of my questions, was what sort of strategies did the gas companies use to push back? Well, immediately they attacked the results as unscientific, that the EPA was on some sort of a witch hunt. And uh, the industry applied massive amounts of money in Wyoming and in Washington, D.C. Our own governor, Matt Mead from the state of Wyoming, flew to Washington, D.C. on at least two occasions to meet with the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency and lobbied her to have the study withdrawn. Mm -mm -mm. You know, and even after he visited our homes and he smelled the water and said, oh, it's foul. And he looked at Jeff and Rhonda's filters that are black and, and he needed towels to wipe his hands off, you know. And so they, they were successful. This last summer, the EPA relinquished control of the investigation back to the state of Wyoming, who said that they don't have any of the capabilities to carry this out and who doubts the concerns of the people. And the governor stood before us and said, we're going to do this investigation and we have funding. And Canna has given us a million and a half dollars to perform this investigation with. So now we're being investigated by a state government who doesn't believe there's anything wrong, and they're being funded by the very company, the very industry, who may have contaminated the water. It, it seems almost Orwellian. It, so at the moment, at home, for you, just to go back to what's happening at your mm -hmm. house, you wouldn't be drinking the water at your house? No. Actually, in Canada, deposits money in an account that the state of Wyoming then manages and they pay for water to be delivered to our homes in five-gallon office water cooler containers. And that's what we drink and cook with. We're still bathing in the water. Uh, and they now have a program where they want to install cisterns for the affected residents. But in order to do that, you have to sign a 30-year access agreement with the state, giving them 30 years access to your water well for them to test at their pleasure, at their will. And uh, so, you, you know, we're once again asked to, to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And to, it really just seems like. Uh, so you can't, there's no way. So at the moment, in fact, the gas company, the way you're describing, the gas companies are, in a sense, winning. They're, they're extracting materials out of the ground, resources yes, out of the ground. They are. And what they've tried to do in Canada, tried to do right about the time the draft report was released in 2010 was to sell the gas field to another company, which is another tactic they use. They, they suck these fields out until there's no longer profit or they're having problems, and they sell it to a smaller company who doesn't have the resources to deal with it. And uh, once the company found out about what was going on there, they backed out of the purchase. Mm. So, that's ast astonishing. Look, I, I just I, I want to pull it a, a little bit... Uh, I suppose in terms of your campaigning and so on, when did when was it that you decided yourself? I mean, you've tr been traveling now around Australia. You've been in the Gasland film. When did you decide or was it thrust upon you to become a kind of spokesperson or, or an organizer? What Was there a moment when it happened or was it a long buildup? There was kind of a buildup to it. You know, we were starting to be affected. We knew there were problems. Uh, as a community, it was really hard. We didn't have anyone organizing us. And so I'm trying to think of exactly when it was. I think it was about 2006. We, we joined a group in Wyoming called the Powder River Basin Resource Council, who was founded 41 years ago in reaction to open strip mining in Wyoming. But they've become private property advocates. 
And they sent us a community organizer. And this woman started to organize for us. And we started to do our part. And I just found myself more and more participating in this and being asked to do this. And at first, I was terrified to stand up and speak in front of people. I was nervous. But I, you know, this is my problem and I have to deal with it. And it's actually been empowering. People don't realize the power that they have, that how strong it can be to stand up and tell your story and that people are willing to listen. And uh, I started to travel around the United States and and look at other places that had been similarly impacted to our home and realize that if I don't tell my story, if I don't try to do something about this, then I'm part of the problem. And so uh, my life has changed forever. I, I do this a lot now. Probably half of my time spent traveling, trying to inform people about what goes on. And, uh, you know, that, that's why I'm here. I'm not here to tell anybody what to do. I'm here to tell you my story and to tell you my perspective and hope that so far what I've seen in Australia, that people are, are, are really concerned about this, and they should be. Mm-hmm. And I hope that people are willing to stand up and, and say, if you can't do this right, if you can't do this without secrecy and without buying off our politicians, then we don't want anything to do with it. And I, I just wanted to, again, go back to those those early, I, I don't know if they're early days, but at days when you started to think about these things. Was it difficult to get the community on side or, or, or was it was it a, a, a major convince? I mean, you do had to, had to get people to come out. I think this is what's happening in Australia as mm-hmm. well, where people are now getting involved in protest and, and things that they would never, ever have done before in their whole life. Did you go through, does your community do the same thing? Uh, I wish that I could say that our community as a whole was as involved as I've seen the Australian communities. I think part of the challenge that we face is that this industry is absolutely ingrained in our society there. Uh, people are very protective of this industry, certain people, because they see this as their meal ticket and their job. And there are people who make a good living doing this. Uh, but it's had a very chilling effect on on some of our relationship with some of the community. They absolutely think that we're in this to to get rich, they've said, to to make a lot of money from trying to, to sue a company. And I can assure you, uh, if I was trying to get rich, this is the last damn way I'd be trying to do it. This is a lot of hard work. It's hard on my family. It's hard on my life. It's never going to be the same. But it's also made me realize what's important. Mm-hmm. And you can't live without water and air that's clean and abundant. And this industry destroys water and air. And you were talking about your family. And again, just to, just to sort of, I suppose, you know, make it a little bit more personal because I, mean, I think this is what everybody's trying to deal with. What 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 impact does, did it have on on your family? Was it lots of pressure building up, and how did you keep your farm going? Uh, our farm, we we're able to continue to grow crops because we are not reliant on the groundwater for irrigation. We actually get our groundwater from the Rocky or our irrigation water from the Rocky Mountains. It's snow melt that's gathered in reservoirs and delivered via canals. If we relied on groundwater like most of Australia does for our irrigation, we would not be farming anymore because the water is so contaminated now. It's so salty, we couldn't grow anything with it. My family has, this has changed my family forever. The farm that we live on is my wife's family farm. They've owned it for about 60 years. Currently, there are four generations of her family on there. There's her parents, there's my wife and I and her brother, and there's our children and our grandchildren. This is an important place to us. 
but what this has done is my sons now, especially the two younger boys, have decided that they're going to do other things. Uh, my son Jim, who's 23, completely changed his career path and has now taken on a job in the renewable energy sector. This has inspired him to do something to counteract what has happened to us. Mm, that's terrific. You know, so that's a very good thing that's happened. But like my wife, this has been probably hardest on her because mm. this is where she grew up. Sure. This is where her heart is at. And mm-hmm. uh, it's been really difficult for her because she's watched her her home be destroyed. Yeah, look, I think the same thing. Is, uh, I think you've traveled around Australia now. You told me a few of the places that you've mo- been to. And I think you're probably going to end up getting the same kinds of stories and, and uh, the difficulties that people are having. They've had their properties and, and their homes for a very, very long time. I read something that you wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald, and I wanted to ask you about this. You, you wrote that in Wyoming, we have an ex- a saying, don't piss on my head and tell me it's raining. Why, why did you refer to that folk saying? Well, because it goes back to this thing, and I've heard it said here, this is going to provide all these jobs. It's going to provide energy independence. You know, they sold us in the United States on energy independence. They literally wrapped themselves in the American flag. This is a patriotic thing. We don't want to be beholden to people who don't like us very much to provide our energy. And as they were selling this bill of goods to the people of the United States, they were building liquefied natural gas export terminals on every coast of the United States. And now all you hear about in the United States is export, export, export. And so we were sold a lie. We were convinced that if we did this thing, that if we took these chances, if we allowed some of this environmental degradation, that we would have energy independence for the next hundred years. And now they want to ship it all overseas. Hmm. So that's what brought out that expression in me. And and I think it's appropriate because that's what it feels like sometimes. Yeah, look, it's terrific. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, was, I was very pleased to read that. Uh, in Australia, it's an old expression. You're listening to a Canadian voice here, but I p- did pick up a few expressions. And it, there was an, there's an expression, don't come the raw prawn with me. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's it's a little bit the same kind of yeah. thing, you know. Anyway, look, uh, we're probably just about out of time because our show, uh, you probably don't know this, but our show is only half hour long. Mm-hmm. So... Look, I, I want to thank you so much for coming in and, and uh, talking to us, and I wish you all the best. And I hope you keep in touch, and we'll keep in touch with you as well. And uh, I was talking to John Fenton. He is a farmer in Pavilion in the state of Wyoming, and as you heard there, a uh, huge fight with the gas industry over fracking on his land and he was here last year, last March, actually, and uh, doing a tour, letting Australians know what happened to him. And as you heard there, uh, rather disastrous consequences. The Frackman movie, which is, a, I suppose you could say it's, a, it's an Australian version, or it's certainly a carryover from uh, the American film Gasland. Frackman, the movie, is playing in... Melbourne at the Nova on the 22nd of April, and it's also being shown at the Jam Factory on the 29th of April. It happens at 6.30, and you can buy your tickets online. They're selling very quickly, and they'd like you to get your ticket before April the 12th because uh, 
If you want to get a seat, well, you better get yourself in there early. And the film is also going around uh, regional areas in Victoria. I got to say that um, if you look at the posters, uh, there's a historic moment on the poster quote from both Alan Jones and Bob Brown together. And uh, Alan Jones says, if you care about our country, see it. Bob Brown says, no Australian voter should miss this film. So there they are, joined together on the poster for Frackman the Movie. 